Well, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to Colossians chapter 2. We're continuing our uh, teaching series through this great letter, and I'm going to invite my friend Renee to come, and she is going to read for us from Colossians 2. So I'm going to invite you to open your hearts to God's word here. Good morning. This is the word of God. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He raised the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Lord Jesus, we ask that right now as we meditate on these words, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit Uh, These words are living and active. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir our hearts, not only to understand what is being said here, but to really make Christ much bigger in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, For myself, God, I pray you'd guard my lips. Help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may each of us uh, be drawn closer into relationship with you and have our our hearts uh, just brought to life in a fresh and new way. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. So last Sunday, there was a pretty uh, significant, from from an American culture standpoint, a a death, a celebrity death, a man named Kobe Bryant. And if you're not a basketball fan, he was uh, kind of a basketball legend, one of the top three or four scoring basketball players in the history of the NBA. And Uh, Somebody told me, it was last Sunday afternoon, I was over at Martha Lake Baptist Church preaching over there, and and it was actually Pastor Jason came and told me, did you hear the news? And so on my drive home, I I turned on sports radio, and and one of the uh, sports radio commentators was was saying things like, it's hard to find the right words, it's hard to find big enough words to say how much impact he had on the game of basketball, and and that line just kind of jumped out at me, and as I'm listening... And it, you know, eventually it goes to commercial, and, and I start noticing, like, the commercials are using similar sorts of language, but not about Kobe Bryant, but about just other things, you know, and, you know, the, the highest rated sedan in all of, you know, America, and then I, and then they cut back, and it was like a Super Bowl thing, and it's like the, you know, the most anticipated game, and then it was like a movie trailer, and it's like the most hotly anticipated movie of 2020, and then, then it was like laundry detergent, and it's like the best, most powerful stain removal in, in America. 
American history. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like everything is just hype and hyperbole and the biggest and the most and the best. And, and even this afternoon, if you're going to watch the Super Bowl, like pay attention. They're going to run stats They're like this is the most yards by a left-handed running back who graduated from an ACC school between the years of 09 and 17. You're like, what is the deal? Like they're, they're digging so deep to get some obscure statistics so that they can use the words the most and the biggest and the best. And it, it just struck me how much of our lives in our culture, we are surrounded by that kind of language. Everything is more and everything is bigger and everything is most and everything is best. And, and, and really, kind of we're, we're numb to it at times. And as we turn the corner in this week, in, in Colossians chapter 2, this really is one of the most dense passages in the entire, not only in the book of Colossians, but maybe in the entire New Testament, because, because Paul and Timothy are, are just jam-packing all of this truth about Jesus. Like, like the, they're, they're really getting to the heart of the reason why they wrote this letter. The whole reason why they wrote this letter, we're, we're kind of done with some of the introductions and the setup, and now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Week one, when we looked at the beginning verses, it was, hey, Jesus really loves this church in Colossae, and we really love this church in Colossae. And, and then week two was like, hey, speaking of Jesus, he's amazing. He's the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead, and they're setting the stage for this, this conflict that's coming. And then last week, we heard them, you know, Paul especially saying, like, I've been laboring to get this message out. I've been working hard to get this message out. And then today, really turning the corner to it. By the way, seems like you're paying attention to some bad and unhealthy teaching. There's some things that you're being drawn to, and, and really that only happens if you, can I use this language, if you get bored of Jesus. If you forget all of that hyperbole, all of that mess and most and greatest and most everything really actually is only true about Jesus Christ. And so my big idea for today that I want us to see in this passage is Christ can't be overestimated. Christ can't be uh, spoken highly of enough. Christ cannot be overstated. And the only way that the Colossian church, in the same way for us, the only way that we forget how big Christ, or the only way that we are taken captive to these other philosophies and ideas is if we forget how truly great Jesus actually is. You remember, this is a church in Colossae. It's a city in what we would call modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. And you got to remember, too, this is a predominantly Gentile area of the world. This is not a Jewish area of the world. It's not Israel. Now, there are Jewish people there, but Paul is writing to a mixed audience, Jew and Gentile. And then not only just Jew and Gentile, but even within those two, a broad range of beliefs and ideologies. There's a New Testament scholar, uh, N.T. Wright, who's really devoted his life to understanding this period of time in this area of the world. And I've got a long quote because he says it better than I can, but I, I hope this helps kind of set the stage for the context of what we're dealing here. Here's what Wright says. He says, it's likely that Colossae had its fair share of the variegated religious practices which characterized the ancient Near East at this time. In this society, the old gods of classical Greek culture still had their adherents, you know, the Zeus and the Hercules of the world, as did the mystery religions, things that like turn into Gnosticism later. 
which promised entry to a secret higher world for those who submitted to the proper initiation. With the passage of time and the movement of people from one area to another, the lines between different cults and religious ideas could get blurred, and the phenomenon known as syncretism, the mixing of religious ideas and practices from a wide range of sources, became quite common. So just try to imagine a world that was very mobile and people moved around and religious ideas could get mixed together. Just stretch your imagination. Try, I know it's a stretch. Just try to imagine such a world. At the same time, as Acts 15 puts it, Moses had representatives in every city. Each town would have had one or more synagogues, and it has been calculated that around this period, the adult male Jewish population in the neighboring area of Laodicea was about 11,000, which is quite a bit. You guys remember Laodicea is like the bigger, more important city about 10 miles away, and Colossae is kind of the, eh, you know, we're here in Colossae. It's the, you know, Colossae is the Linwood to the Seattle of Laodicea, right? It's, it's a little bit like that. It says, we know from a variety of sources that Judaism in one form or another was attractive to many pagans, weary of the confused, often amoral religion of their own background. And it's likely that Christianity would make a similar impression on pagan hearers. It would therefore be easy, as we know from Galatians, for young converts to Christianity to become muddled and to imagine that having become Christians, they must complete the process by becoming Jews. All that to say, there's a lot going on here. And when you read in you know, your Bible, mine has this, this heading here, the Colossian heresy. We don't really know with specificity what the Colossian heresy is. It's got elements of traditional Judaism. It's got elements of mystic Judaism. It's got elements of paganism. It's got elements of Gnosticism. It's kind of a big jumbled mess. And Paul and Timothy are going to say, hey, remember the gospel that you heard and don't get bored with Jesus. Verse six, so then... As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So there's a couple of things in here. It's a little bit, this one's for the word nerds, but all those words of being rooted and being built up, those are what you would call passive participles. You don't need to be a grammarian to understand that when a word is in the passive tense, it means that you didn't do it. So when you understand your salvation, when you understand that this is a work of God, he's the one who planted your roots in the soil of the gospel. He's the one who built you up. He's the one who establishes you. That's good news for us. Amen? And then it says, now your job is to continue. Your job is to persevere. And oh, by the way, He does that work of perseverance in us as well. So we don't get to take too much credit for it. But our call is to focus on persevering and not just any type of persevering. What does it say? Overflowing with gratitude. You know, as as John was kind of sharing about like growing up in the church, I too grew up in the church. And I will confess there have been times in my life where I have gotten, I'll just say it. The gospel just kind of sounds rote. Oh yeah, Jesus died, he rose again. He's the son of God, fully man. But when you really think about what the claims of the gospel are, how could we not just overflow with gratitude? God, you loved me? God, you saved me? The the one who who hung the stars in the heavens? The one who, who created life and matter and space and time? He knows me by name? 
And that God entered into human history and, and came to save me. How could I not have gratitude just pouring out? How could I not want to fight to stay committed to him? Right into this, verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive. That's the language of warfare. So there is a, a war, there's a battle going on through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. I heard one pastor say that someone tried to use this verse as justification for why Christians shouldn't get philosophy degrees in college. <laughs> and I, okay, somebody, a little slight exercise in missing the point. The point is not that philosophy is bad because philosophy is just thinking about the nature of things. That's real good, okay? The point is don't be susceptible to philosophy that is empty. It's not true. There are things that are true to think about and there are things that are not true to think about. And it's, it's this idea of they're based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. And it goes right into verse 9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Friends, whatever divinity is, the fullness of it dwells in Jesus. All that is divinity, all that is God, all that we could call uh, the, the trueness of supernatural divinity was present and is present in Christ Jesus. Jesus is not merely a rabbi. He's not merely a teacher. He's not merely uh, an activist. He's not merely a, a, a good person whose life we should follow. Though he is all of those things, he is so much more. He is God himself entered into human history. And it says that he, the, the fullness of divinity dwells in him bodily. And the word is in the present tense, dwells. Have you reflected recently that Jesus Christ still has a body? Jesus Christ did not become embodied, live, die, rise again, and then cease to be embodied. The Bible claims that he is still embodied. And you might say, well, I thought he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. To which I say, yeah, he did. And then you say, well, how does he have a body? To which I say, go read 1 Corinthians 15 and listen to the Apostle Paul lose his mind trying to describe it. And then you come back and you tell me. <laughs> Jesus Christ today is still the fullness of God, and he is still the true human standing in the presence of God, mediating on our behalf, giving us unfettered access to the fullness that is God through his own life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is amazing. And it says that fullness, you've been filled by him. Okay, just, okay, let's, time out, parentheses. I know that I'm prone to hyperbole, okay? I get it. You, those of you who've been, yes, my wife, yes, thank you. Hold me accountable. And I get it from my parents who are visiting here too, especially my mom. I know I'm prone to hyperbole, but you're seeing these same words that I'm seeing, right? Like this is what the Apostle Paul and Timothy are saying to us, that, that this fullness of divinity dwells in Christ and you who have repented of your sins, who have trusted in him, who've come to believe in the gospel, you've been filled by him. You've been filled by him. Paul says elsewhere that the, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. When was the last time that truth just took your breath away? When was the last time you just said, like, I, I just 
put my hand over my mouth. I can't even speak. Wow, what an amazing thought. We've been filled by him. And, and for the Colossians, there's this kind of um, specific thing that's happening here. It says this, this tr- human tradition based on the elements of the world. And I want to pause on that phrase for a moment because it's kind of a strange thing that we need to understand a little bit. The idea of the elements, the word in Greek is stoicheia. It's a very rare word. It actually only appears uh, seven times in the New Testament. But stoicheia can refer to like basic principles. You actually see the word used that way in the book of Hebrews chapter 5 when it talks about you need to learn the basic principles of Christianity. Uh, Logic, grammar, math. It also refers to basic elements like earth, wind, and fire. And do you remember, as First Peter says, the 30th, I'm just kidding, but like uh, it's how Peter uses it about the, the basic elements of the world will be melted and dissolved. And then when Christ returns, he makes all things new and there's a new heavens and a new earth. But it also gets used in the Bible, but also in other literature as this idea of basic spiritual realities that are interconnected with those elements of earth and, and fire and, and wind, right? Basic spiritual realities. You, this, you're probably familiar with the idea that various pagan religions believed that the natural forces like wind or the sun contained a spiritual reality. What you might not realize is there's a strain of Judaism that believes some similar sorts of things. Um, when we read the New Testament, we're mostly interacting with kind of orthodox Pharisee, Pharisaical Judaism, which is like a very kind of traditional but there was this group of people living out in the desert called the Essenes. You guys ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They had some ideas. They had some interesting ideas. Uh, Michael Heiser, who's a scholar that studies this, he says, in mystical Judaism and certain second temple texts, or what we would call pseudepigraphical texts, and by the way, you want to use that word at your Super Bowl party this afternoon, okay? Pseudepigraphical texts, you can find passages that let us know that some Jews presumed the elements were in some way associated with supernatural beings. In both Gentile circles and Jewish circles, the elements of the world were thought to be somehow controlled or empowered or under the supervision of supernatural beings. You can't get away from the supernatural. And because I'm the kind of pastor that likes to give you bonus content, I want to show you one such passage from a book called Jubilees. Jubilees is not scripture. It's, uh, it's sometimes called Extra Genesis, or the Lesser Genesis. It was probably written about 150 BC. And here's just one such passage so that you understand the kind of things that the people in this Colossian church might have been tempted to think. Jubilees 2.2 says this, For on the first day he created the heavens which are above, and the earth and the waters, and all the spirits which serve before him. The angels of the presence, the angels of sanctification, the angels of the spirit of fire and the angel of the spirit of the winds. And isn't that like a casino up in Everett or something? Like, and, and the angels of the spirit of the clouds and darkness and snow, like the angels of snow are real active this weekend and hail and frost and the angels of voices and of the thunder and the lightning and the angels of the spirits of cold and heat and winter and springtime and harvest and summer and all of the spirits of his creatures which are in the heavens and on the earth. Here's the point. The ancients, both pagan and in certain strains of Judaism, believed there was all sorts of stuff going on. 
And they started to get really excited about all these other spiritual realities. And they were thinking about all these other spiritual realities. And Paul and Timothy come along and say, hey, cool that you got an angel of the spirit of the wind. Jesus is the fullness of God. There's a reason why verse 9 follows verse 8. You, you're tracking with me. Oh, cool that you believe in some spirit of the thunders, the, the one true God, who the fullness of whom lives in Jesus Christ as his voice echoes like the thunders over the water. Don't be playing with some low-class angel of the spirit of the wind, casino spirit, or whatever. Like, be, be invested in Jesus. Let him dominate your attention. Let him dominate your affection. And it's not just who he is, it's what he has done. It's not just his nature, it's his activity. Verse 11, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Clear? You know know how when Peter is like, you know, there's some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. It's that. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. He's talking about circumcision, which this is one of those Jewish elements, right? He, he, there's a group of, of people we know from this kind of time, you know, the, the, the Jewish followers of Jesus, and then as, as Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, wanted to come join in the, the, the Jesus movement and follow Jesus, there was a group that saying, you got to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. And Paul is reminding all of his hearers, both Jew and Gentile, that the physical sign of circumcision that was given to the people of Israel had one significant flaw. It didn't do anything about the heart. It was an external marker that said, yeah, you're part of this community, but you can read all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, all the way from Deuteronomy to the prophet Jeremiah, where they're saying, hey, what you need is not just the outside marker of being a follower of Yahweh. You need a a circumcision of the heart, the prophets would call it. You need to have your heart cut by God so that it can come to life and actually be faithful to Yahweh. Because you guys have read the Old Testament, right? A lot of people who were circumcised worshiping a lot of idols. A lot of people who had the external marker of faithfulness to Yahweh that did not honor Yahweh as Lord in their hearts. And so now Paul is saying, look, something amazing has happened. Those of you who are Jewish and those of you who are Gentiles have actually received that which was called for in Christ Jesus, the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision of the Messiah. Your heart has been brought to life. This is such good news. It's not about an external uh, marker, external conformity. It's about a work that God has done in your heart to bring you back to life. And when did this happen? It said, when you were buried with him in baptism. And this is interesting because, you know, if you read the New Testament, there are some passages about baptism that are very clearly about water baptism. Like water is explicitly mentioned. There are some passages that are really clearly about spirit baptism. And when I say spirit baptism, what what Paul means is, uh, again, that work that the Holy Spirit does to just drown you in Christ and raise you to new life in him. It's It's a working of the spirit. It has less to do with speaking in tongues and more to do with you were spiritually dead and now you're alive. This text does not explicitly mention water or spirit. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out which one it is and I walked away thoroughly convinced I have no idea. I I think it has more to do 
with spirit baptism because it's talking about this, this, this new circumcision, this, this spiritual baptism where you've been, you've been brought back from the dead. I mean, look, look at what he says. He says, you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him. This is amazing news. Friends, I can't do anything in my best preaching, in, in, in my best preparation to change your heart if God doesn't show up, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and do a work in your life. At the best, all it is, is I'm tiring out my voice and I'm tiring out your ears and we all go home and everyone's tired, okay? What we need is the work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is why we can have confidence when we share the gospel with our friends or our neighbors. You're not the one who saves anyone. Your job is to just be faithful, to share Christ and the message of the gospel and the love that he's poured out into your heart. And the Spirit is the one who takes a dead heart of stone and brings it back alive and turns it into a heart of flesh. That's pretty amazing, is it not? I could inspire you. A TED Talk could inspire you. Heck, a Disney movie could inspire you. But if you want to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, you need the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has done. Take that, spirit of the winds. <laughs> Continuing on in verse 13. And notice how the language changes. By the way, let me just say this. We are going to have a night of prayer and baptisms in just a few weeks. We're going to co-host this with our friends over at Martha Lake Baptist Church. Uh, if, you, if you have not been water baptized, but you have been spirit baptized. In other words, if you've had that internal work of God in your heart, where where he's brought your heart to life and you've placed faith in Jesus, but you've never done the external action of going under the waters to identify with Christ's death and coming up to identify with his resurrection, we would love to baptize you here in a few weeks. And whether or not you're getting baptized, please come and join with us to pray as, as God leads us uh, in this discussion of merging together with Martha Lake and just to see uh, Christ's love be poured out here in the North Puget Sound. Come pray with us. Come get baptized if you've not been. Come talk to me afterwards. Okay, there's more. We gotta get through more. He brought our dead hearts to life and forgave us all our trespasses. Notice how the language turned from you to us forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. I think there's a couple of things happening here. I think that Paul knows he is speaking to primarily a Gentile audience and now he's kind of turned the focus on himself and and, and others as Jewish followers of Jesus and saying there's this certificate of debt that now has been erased by Jesus. See, God created humanity to do a couple of things very explicitly. To image him, to, 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 to bear his image and likeness, to represent him by stewarding his creation and, and ruling and reigning. And well, friends, humanity failed to do that, right? And so God calls a specific people group, the, the family of Abraham, the, the people of Israel, says, I'm going to use you to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. But friends, again, you've read the Old Testament, how did Israel do? Not so good. But they're the ones that signed on the dotted line. The, 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 the Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai, it's we will do all these things and we will be your people and you will be our God. And, and, and there's, this, there's this like signing on the dotted line that now the people of Israel have failed to do. And so there's a certificate of debt, an unpayable debt with its obligations. And Christ comes and pays it all. 
G.K. Beale, a biblical scholar who's brilliant, he sums it up this way. He says this, God's law condemned Jews who had contracted with God to obey his law, but broke it. But Gentiles also, hey, those of us who are not Jewish, we aren't getting off the hook. Gentiles also stood guilty because they violated the law's moral commands, which would have been known through their conscience. In fact, Israel was a corporate Adam figure who represented all humanity in their obligation to obey God. Thus, all humanity needed forgiveness for breaking the divine law. One of the things that's so important for us to remember is God saves us individually, yes. He makes your dead heart come alive. But there's a corporate element where we are humanity, even Jew and Gentile and, and all of the nations of the earth brought together in Jesus. And what Jesus does is he wipes that debt away that we owed God by failing to live up to what we were created to do. There's something going on here. Like it's just beyond our comprehension. We can kind of understand like personally what it means for us as an individual to be forgiven of our sins. And we can kind of understand uh, what it feels like to have a change of heart. But we start getting into this corporate language. It starts to get beyond us. And all we can do is just fall down and thank Jesus. All I know is I'm part of humanity and we owed a great unpayable debt. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that debt has been wiped clean. That's such good news. And then there's one more thing. Verse 15, maybe my, maybe my favorite verse in this entire book, one of my favorite verses overall, it says this. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, when we think rulers and authorities, as good 21st century Westerners, we think of politicians and kings and prime ministers and presidents and all of that kind of stuff. But those of you who were here this last fall, we were studying the book of Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 10. You remember the prince of Persia? Remember all that stuff? Like, like there are spiritual realities that are happening beyond just the earthly realities that we see. On a human level, it says here, Jesus, he, he triumphed over them in him or in the cross, some translations say. And the word therefore disarmed is particularly interesting because in the Greek, the word disarmed, uh, it means stripped. And you think of Jesus when he was stripped naked. He was crucified to a cross. The, the Jewish re religious leaders and political leaders and the Roman political leaders all conspired together to strip and humiliate Jesus and to nail him to the cross. And what Paul and Timothy are saying is that in that moment, not only the powers of this world, but the supernatural powers were themselves stripped and disarmed and disgraced publicly, Jesus conquering over them. And here is where we are all just out of our depth. <laughs> Because there are forces happening. There's a spiritual war happening all around us. May we never uh, uh, fall prey to a naturalistic mindset where all that we acknowledge is what we can see and touch and smell. It just doesn't square with the biblical worldview. There's all this spiritual reality happening behind the scenes. I don't claim to fully understand it. Heck, even when we studied Daniel, he like, you know, just went and wept for two weeks because he didn't understand it, okay? But the reality is, is that Jesus is winning a war at a supernatural cosmic level that's just beyond our comprehension. Not only 
does he make our hearts come alive. Not only does he forgive us of our corporate debt, he is wiping the floor with the devil and putting him to open shame. What are we doing messing around with any other spiritual force other than Jesus? If you want to read more about some of that stuff, I, I included a PDF on the website about spiritual warfare and this language of rulers and authorities and how it uh, relates to spiritual warfare. The scholar Michael Heiser, who I mentioned earlier, I've got one chapter from his book up there on the website. Go look that up and read about it. But let me just, let me just circle back around and land the plane here, okay? I said at the beginning, Christ can't be overestimated or overstated. I cannot speak highly enough about Jesus And here's the deal. You and I are probably not very tempted to worship the elemental spirits. In my years of pastoral ministry, I've yet to have someone come and say, Pastor Aaron, I have been worshiping the angel of the winds casino spirit, and I need to repent of that. And there's, I mean, there's some spirituality and stuff like that that I deal with, but but more often... I'm actually just finding people worshiping the elements themselves. The basic things of of natural human life. I mean, anybody with me where it's like you find yourself just thinking about almost anything and everything other than Jesus? Anybody find yourself distracted with whether it's the the messages of, of our culture and the advertisements of the biggest and most important this or most important that out there? Or, or, or maybe it's the more internal stuff, the, the thought life where you just obsess over things, your own faults, your own flaws. What, what, is, it that, what is it that you think about? Let me, let me help you to discern if your Christ is big enough. Here's a couple questions you can ask. Number one, Ask somebody who knows you well, what is big in your life? Some, your, your spouse, a good friend, you know, maybe someone in your community group, a close coworker. The language sometimes I use, like, you know, if you're a cup, it's like you bump you, what, what spills out of you. I have those conversations with people like, hey, it's good to see you. Oh, I haven't caught you. Yeah, I haven't seen you a couple. Yeah, I know. And tell me about it in the impeachment hearings. And they're like, what? Where did that come from? Right? Just where you go, where you think, what you talk about, what spills out of you. Here's another one. Spend some time this week in silent prayer. Take, try to take 10 minutes. Turn your phone off, turn your computer off, turn on some, maybe some quiet music or white noise or whatever. Get somewhere quiet and just try to spend 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, sitting quietly, meditating on Jesus. And if you're anything like me, the ping pong balls of your mind will start to go, oh, so many different places. (laughs) Pay attention to those things. Where does your mind go? What do you think about? Okay, here's one more. Last time you woke up in the middle of the night, what were you thinking about? Three in the morning. Christ is the image of the invisible God and the fullness of deity dwells in him and I've been filled with his fullness. No, what are you thinking about? Some of the obvious ones I like to, to poke fun of, you know, politics. Everything's just politics, politics, right? Oh, Christ is over every ruler and authority. I'm not saying it's unimportant. It's just not that important. Money, work, grades. Anything wrong with, like, thinking about those things or, or being aware of things? We're told to steward our money. We're told to do a good job in our work. Is that going to last forever? Is your boss the fullness of deity in human form? They're not. 
What about um, other people's opinions of you? Oh, I'm sorry, did I just go from preaching to meddling? Okay. Other people's opinions of you, what they think of you, and did you forget to text somebody for their birthday, or did somebody, was somebody disappointed in you and how much you did or didn't do for them? Or Like, are we getting real here? Like, should we, should we try to love people and should we seek to have a good reputation? Yeah. Will you fail people? Definitely. By the end of the day today, you will. And yet Christ says that his fullness is with you and you've been brought from death to life. So many things, externally and internally, are competing for our mental energy and the emotional energy that we have in our hearts. And even if they're good things, even if they're important things, they are all secondary to who Christ is and what he has done for us. And maybe you come here and you get a 40-minute sermon, 44-minute, 47-minute sermon, okay? Once a week, and maybe you read your Bible for five minutes, ten minutes a day, and you spend a few minutes praying here and there, but like, do you understand just internally and externally the onslaught of just things competing for our attention, things that will not necessarily last into eternity? And yet, the fullness of Christ dwells, the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and his fullness has come and taken residence in your heart. What do we have to think about besides him? So this afternoon, as many, if not most of you, are going to sit and watch the Super Bowl, pay attention to the commercials and keep track of how many most and best and biggest and whitest your laundry has ever been and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. I'm sorry, I just, ruined, I just ruined the Super Bowl for you. Even those of you who don't even like football, you're like, that was the one thing I liked and I just ruined it for you. You're welcome, I'm here to serve, okay? And may each of those things serve as a reminder for us to say, Jesus, you are all. Jesus, you are everything. As we come now to the Lord's table to gather around the bread and the cup to remember his broken body and his shed blood. May we remember that this is, a, this is a reality that we can't even grasp. As we lift our voices to sing, may we remember that the God of the universe hears us right now. And may our hearts and our attention be drawn to him in greater measure. Lord, we thank you for the greatness of Christ. We thank you that Lord God, though we have had sinful dead hearts that are disconnected from life, you have entered in and you've made us alive with Christ. God, if there's anyone here today who, who has not experienced that, I pray, Lord God, that you would do that sovereign work that only you can do right now in bringing a dead heart to life. And God, for those of us who have been brought to life by your grace and by your spirit, would you help us to experience a deeper level of joy and a deeper level of, of gratitude, overflowing with gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.